Hello, I'm Tim McLaughlin, and this is a Maywon Podcast. In this episode, weaver, artist, and teacher, Bhakti Zeke, presents part two of From the Heart, A Weaver's Journey. The lecture was first presented at the Maywalk Textile Symposium on October 16, 2007. In her wide-ranging talk, Bhakti speaks about the threads that have become her lifeline, about her love of weaving that encompasses both simple backstrap looms and modern computerized equipment, and about her struggle to stay connected as a weaver, artist, and human being. I was still working at home on my floor loom. So I've never, it was not exclusively one or the other. And at this time in my life, my mother was uh, quite ill. She had emphysema. And my mom was a really interesting woman. Um, not always easy, always interesting. And I remember saying to her, Mom, what are you doing? Because my mom was a great reader. And I noticed that her book, she still had her book in her hand, but it was upside down. So I knew she wasn't reading, not really. And so I said, Mom, what are you doing? What are you doing with your life? She said, she turned it around right away. Well, what are you doing with your life? And I said, well, I'm thinking about my students. I'm thinking about my marriage. I'm thinking about my ambition. And she said, well, your life is going like this. My life is going like that. And she gave me this profound shape that is in every textile around the world. Every culture has used this kind of a diamond shape. But now it was really mine. She gave me a real meaning to use it. So I did this weaving called Parents for honor my mom and dad. And it's just simple inlay, plain weave of, again, of wooden materials. And I'm trying to talk about the language of weaving, that it's the density of the threads. Actually, I'll go back. The density of the threads causes it to be sheer in the center and, and really um, opaque on the edges. And trying to think about, since I'm working on the jacquard and I'm working on the loom, what's the appropriate um, imagery and language for this type of technology? So what I, and I couldn't do this on the jacquard because the jacquard could not take that, could the, the grippers that would take the thread could not take the thin thread and then take that big piece of wood. So, you know, there were definitely different reasons to use the different technologies. At the same time, I was able to weave uh, an artist. Uh, I had done a lecture in Chicago, and it, this artist statement, which it's funny. I actually saw this piece in a show recently and got to read it myself again. And I thought, I thought, I should just read that to this audience because I do think that I said a lot of profound things there. Um, but you know what? You can't because that was from that moment, and it's so it's still valid. And many of those things that I said are really valid to me. It just somehow that came in '93, and this is 2007. Lots of changes. You know what hasn't changed, and what I did talk about in this piece was a way of approaching things. There was a really great uh, Indian. Uh, teacher named Nichananda, and he talked about not this, not that, not this, not that. And so I always have, have, have admired people who've been able to say, I'm going there, and they just head right towards it. Or in their working process, they can do a sketch, and that's what they do. 
But I'm much more the kind of person that's put everything on the table. I have to see every possibility. And then I start saying, not this, not that, not this. And, well, I haven't gotten to the this yet, but I still have hope that I will. And in, in this not this, not that life, in 95, my husband and I went to New Mexico, and we found this 53 acres of land that we could afford. We, we purchased it. And we built a yurt in Philadelphia. We had big, my 50th, my 50th birthday party, we had in that yurt in Philadelphia, grass, and it was so beautiful. And then we packed it in our pickup truck, and we were urban nomads, and we went to New Mexico where we set it up. And our cat, Montgomery, who is no longer alive, was with us. And uh, we lived in the yurt. So we bought the land in 95. 96 was the summer that we lived in the yurt. Um, you can see I had my loom in there, and there was an area where Mark would do painting. And I considered it a summer of wonder, of kind of the re... You know that book, The uh, Reenchantment of Art? It was sort of like the reenchantment of my life. And being in the yurt, again, was part of it, where you really heard the wind, the rain. I saw that I couldn't not see the stars. I had a tarantula in my pocket one day, not the best experience. We started finding pottery shards. And Mark and I, we thought we were the first people out there on that land that nobody had ever been out there before us. And these pottery shards showed us that people had been there for hundreds or maybe even a thousand years. And then again, I realized, well, you know, I would say this. Before I went to graduate school, all my work sold. And I was willing to sell everything. Anything I did, I was willing to sell. Since I went to graduate school, and I think my work got more interesting, hardly any of my work sells. <laughs> so I have a great show record, so people seem to like it, but they don't purchase it. So I have lots of work rolled up. And so I started to think, well, if it's just going to be rolled up, I can be more and more personal in my work. So here I put a map of the land. So if you wanted to get to our land, you could follow this map. And there's Mark and I in front of our yurt. The next summer, in 97, instead of going to New Mexico, we went to Italy. And I got to work at the Fondacion de la Sette Liceo. And if any of you are interested in historical textiles and want an experience with really old equipment, this is the place to go. They have, this is a velvet loom. And velvet, a true velvet is a, is a, a supplementary warp, an extra warp. So you're weaving a flat cloth, and then you have this extra warp that is brought up as a pile. And it's easy to do a warp where everything comes up on the same thing. You can do a simple velvet on three shafts, two for the ground and one for the pile. But if you want to do figured velvet, you have to have every one of those warp threads separately weighted. And so this is the, what's, that's an example of the, each thread is on its own like back beam. It's amazing loom. And... You know, I don't think you can be a weaver unless you really are intrigued by the equipment. I mean, that's where well, you're going to sit and use it. And it, you know, it just, I think it's fascinating that people have conceived of this. And, you know, I, I remember reading those stories about a battle happening. I think it's maybe the Romans, and I won't go into details because I'll get it wrong, but essentially somebody unfurling 
banners of silk, and they were so beautiful and they, that they dazzled the other army who just put down their weapons. And in fact, Charlotte, when I was reading about your party on Saturday, I was thinking about this fabric being unfurled into the... I mean, it's going to be beautiful. Well, I feel that, you know, even though I've worked on some fine threads, and in Philadelphia we had 90 ends per inch, but 90 ends per inch is crude in this kind of fabric. Where here, suddenly it was 200 ends per inch, and it was silk that had that kind of sheen. And so there's a damask ground of a map of Florence in this, and it's hard to see in the slide, but in the actual weaving, it has that kind of like iridescence. And then I put an image of fretwork, and then those other images, which I kind of think of as fireworks, are the um, structural diagrams of the weave structures that I use to actually weave this cloth. So again, it's sort of an in-joke for the weavers in the room. Well, I got a sabbatical. Everybody should teach at a university to get a sabbatical. I got a whole year off, and we went to New Mexico, lived in our yurt, and we built a straw bale house. The year of building that, that house really confirmed to Mark and I that we had a place that we wanted to be. And before that, we'd always sort of moved because of job or school or you know New York City, because if you're an artist, you should be in New York. We thought, well, here's a place. We've chosen this place. Let's live here. We were planning. I thought I was going to New Mexico, and suddenly there was a job listing at the University of Kansas. And actually, what had happened is that the University of Kansas had, a, had this job listed the year that I was before while I was on sabbatical. And because I had my obligation, I couldn't apply for it even though it was sort of my dream job because I met Mark there and I was found myself as an artist there and I really loved Lawrence. So they actually had hired somebody and then uh, I think that, that things changed and she didn't take the job. So, so suddenly there I was the next year with a job being posted again. And I thought that meant that I was supposed to have the job. And so I asked Mark, are you willing to move to Lawrence? And he said, he's from Kansas. I don't think he really, uh, okay, he's really great. So I did apply, and I got it. And I did one of those things that I'll tell you about it now because I think it was very foolish. I went from a tenure job to non-tenure. I went from an associate professor back to assistant professor. And I took a cut in salary that was more than $10,000. And I did all of that completely knowing, knowingly because I thought none of it was important. But in fact, it was important. Um, it was very important. And, um, and it was clear almost from the beginning that almost like that story that you can't go back, you know, you can't go home again. Today, I would have a little bit more respect for some of the things that I achieved. But Kansas was actually, so I was there for two years, 2000 to 2002. And it was very unexpected. Um, for one thing, I thought that Jack Hard was out of my life because they did not have equipment at Kansas. But they had terrific grants. And I got um, grants for two years running that made up for my loss of salary. And I was able to travel, and I, I traveled many places to study Jack Hard. 
And so this is a TC1 loom, and this is Nina Jacobs' loom. Now, Nina lives here in Vancouver now and is, is here with the loom. And I started doing this series of weavings uh, based on uh, the roomy poem, The Guest House. And I'm going to read it to you. The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Honestly, there were some mornings that I couldn't get out of bed without reading this poem. And then I was able to go to Montreal, to the Center of Contemporary Textiles, and work on Louise, that's the school that Louise Barabay runs, and worked on their hand loom, which is a tiss loom. And um, I was able to collaborate with Elizabeth Billings, um, who's my uh, friend from Cranbrook. And so we did this weaving uh, using her weft ecot. I, I did the whole jacquard format. And we took turns weaving it, so that was fun too. Um, and then I was able to go down to the jacquard Center, which is in H- uh, Hendersonville, North Carolina, and it's run by Beth Ann Knudsen. And um, Beth Ann um, made... Have worked has worked with industry very closely. She's often trained them on the software. So she made arrangements for people to get into this mill. It was called Pure Country. She, uh, she now has her own mill that she. So she's being able to weave the, her own students' work. But um, for many of the, it was a small class, just six students. Um, and for everyone else, it was the first time at using that kind of equipment. But for me, it was equipment that I was familiar with from Philadelphia. So I was able to do a lot of work in that week. And I did a whole series of textiles. And I started a business called Flying Monkey Textiles because I needed a way to support myself in New Mexico. I knew I was going back. And I was just sure that these blankets, that everybody in the world would want them. Um, But it turns out that not only doesn't everybody want a Hanuman blanket, um, (laughs) but... The $280 that I was charging to people who did know Hanuman, most of them thought this was exorbitant. And, you know, my weavings, though, they don't often sell. When they do sell, they sell for thousands of dollars. So I thought that $280 was reasonable. And people would say, well, I can get this at Walmart for $40. And I've never seen a Hanuman blanket in Walmart. (laughs) Now, this series, I, I have almost sold all of these. So Flying Monkey does not exist anymore. And, oh, this is interesting, too. We put our straw bale house up for sale when we moved to um, Lawrence. And everyone was like, you're selling your dream house? And we're like, that's not our dream house. You know, it's part of a dream. But I'm very interested in the process and in making it and in what I learn as I go, but I'm hardly ever interested in the final results. And I think maybe the house, too. It's like the idea that I was 
to try straw bale to see it. But of course, the reality is that it's too small, and where's our studios? And so, you know, we tried to sell it. That first Christmas, when we hadn't it hadn't sold, and we went back, we realized let's hold on to it. So we still owned the house in New Mexico. We went back in in 2002. I first thing I did was start to weave all these fabrics with wool and you know fabrics that I could 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 felt. Um, and I think I did actually felt one or two of them. But I'm a really good one at you know starting something, and if it doesn't draw me, I leave it. I actually often think that all anyone can ask for is to find something that really gets them up in the morning and gets them excited, pulls them into the studio. There are so many things in our lives calling for us to do. It's just great when it's your work that is the most demanding, the most interesting. I wanted to keep words in my text, but I didn't really want to do brocading, so I tried burning images into wood and weaving the wood into a piece and then felting it and just... You know, didn't work. Okay, I found that I did not want to go to the loom. And I was walking by my loom every day. So what I did was I started taking ceramics classes. Way back in 69 when I first started to weave, um, I was also doing ceramics. And I loved pottery. I loved working on the wheel. I loved being dirty. I loved that I'd walk down the streets and people could see the mud, dried mud on my clothes, that I was a potter and it showed. Where weaving just seemed so clean and precise and I I had a facility for it, you know, but I can't say it wasn't like, it wasn't that inspired image in my head. But, you know, when I went back to school in Kansas and I had the chance, you know, I landed in a weaving town in Guatemala. If I had ended up in a ceramics town, I'd probably be talking to you about my ceramics. And then when I went to KU and had the chance to do ceramics again, I thought, well, I had gone so far already with weaving, I I didn't really want to sidetrack myself, so I didn't even go near it. But at this point, I did pick up the ceramics again. And I'm sure I drove my teacher crazy because she thought she had to show us new things. And every day she'd show us a new way to make a form and to collapse it and to do this. And and I just kept making cylinders and putting circles on them. (laughs) And that's what I really wanted to do. And I remember one day sitting, literally holding this piece in my hand and painting a circle and being totally engaged. It it was amazing. I was absorbed. I was engaged. And it was just like, that's it. That's that's what I'm looking for. I stopped doing ceramics, and I returned to the loom. (laughs) And I think sometimes you have to trick yourself to get back to that place. And I also decided I had always basically used MX dyes. I mean, I knew how to do some natural dyes, but I hadn't really done them. So I decided I'd use natural dyes. Again, something that I would could make a lot of mistakes with because I think that you learn more from your mistakes than your successes. Um, and I did a whole series of these pieces called natural dyes. Then they started to become smaller. So this is a smaller one. And then they started to take on more erratic uh, shapes, and then they really started to really break free into more m- way. And in a way, I felt like was back 
in Kansas in the 70s doing those brocaded shapes where I used to say that those shapes would talk to me. And he put the first line in and then suddenly he'd say, go right, go left, do more, add this, you know, stop. And the work does start to talk to you. At this time also, I ran, a, I read an article that Alice Schlein, who is a really great weaver in South Carolina, had written. And Alice had taken a class from me at Aramont. Um, and of course, I was familiar with her work. And most, if you're a weaver, you probably know her book, Network Drafting. And Alice had written a book for the uh, article for this online jacquard study group on using Photoshop for jacquard design. And Alice owns a TC1 loom. And she was basically doing all her designing in jacquard and going right to the loom. And it just turned out that I was taking Photoshop classes at the time at a community college. And I had all of these thousands of weave structures saved in different formats from the six or seven different specialized jacquard software that I knew and I had taught. And I didn't have access to any of them because each one of those required this dedicated software or some kind of – I might even have the software on my computer, but you needed a special key to access it. And so I really was stuck with not being able to do jackhard. So I contacted Alice and said, do you want to write a book? Here, I'll do a plug for it, The Woven Pixel. Again, there's some information on it if you want to order it. It's a real how-to book. So it's not a coffee table book. It does have a CD with all the images in color. And I think – and it also has chapters on it where uh, you can design for a mill, and it's got all the weave structures in it. So if you're not a weaver, you could still get your ideas, do your designing in Photoshop, and send it to the mill and have it woven. And during that time, I was traveling to work on Jacquard because, you know, I'd write up a chapter, and sometimes I'd send it to Alice, and she'd test it. And sometimes I would travel somewhere. So I was able to go to Kent State, Ohio, and work at, at the um, – and do a series based on the trees outside my home, my guardians. I really love this layering of things. Again, what I do and what, you know, often what you're drawn to and what you do are different. Like, really love those Robert Ryman paintings that are solid white. But I cannot give myself permission to do work that simple. I mean, actually, I think it's quite complex and quite courageous that he could do that. But I'm really layered, and maybe it goes back to that table full of everything. And so I like taking lots of things and layering them. And, and if, if it can become more complex, I'm going to figure out how to do it. And so uh, uh, weaving like crab apple, again, like one of my guardian trees, um, a text that's about jacquard and images from Turkey. And that was an ecot natural dyes e-cotted warp so I could tie it on that loom. So suddenly I had access to the idea of all these things that I knew about from the floor loom, like painted warps and braided warps and e-cot and the jacquard imagery. The textiles, like when I'm depressed, I open up a book on historical textiles Today, going to the Anthropology Museum and opening up drawers and looking at these old tools and fabrics that are beaded and, you know, that they had a function, but now I'm looking at them just purely visually, they, that gets me out of my depression. It gives me hope. 
somebody has made something beautiful, there's a chance that I will too. And so these brocaded jack cards, they're actually drawer loom fabrics from the 1600s, uh, 1700s. They're wonderful. And finally, because of the TC1 loom, I've had the access to, to do them. Um, the other thing is that I've spent quite a lot of time while writing this book and even since writing the book creating weave structures. And this is why the book works for people who don't know how to weave because each one of these is a structure that works. It's designed specifically for a mill in North Carolina called Belgian Mills. And um, they're actually, you all know them because probably the fabric you're sitting on right now is this kind of bro uh, warp tapestry. It's very tight. It, it passes rub tests. It, you know, it's almost water. It can carry water in it. It's so tight. And I would go through all the mathematical possibilities of eight different warp colors and three weft systems and how can you bring up color to get different color. And I would develop this weave blanket. This particular one has a twill working in the back. And I like the fact that I can say to students, here's something that you have a chance to be the master at because no one has done anything really interesting yet. The potential's there. So jump for joy. That's how I feel about weaving. After all these years, I still feel jump for joy. Thank you. You've been listening to Bhakti Zeke's lecture, From the Heart, A Weaver's Journey. The lecture was recorded live at the Maywalk Textile Symposium on October 16, 2007. For more information on Bhakti Zeke or the Maywa podcasts, visit our website at www.maywa.com. I'm Tim McLaughlin. Thank you for listening.